Hi, everyone. Um, if you have never met me before, just going to step over this little guy. Um, if you've never met me before, uh, my name's Alice, and I work for Bread. It's really nice to see you. I feel like I see some fresh faces. It's nice to have you with us. Um, I'd love to meet you after the service. Um, last week, we embarked on a new talk series in the book of Colossians. And as you would have experienced if you were here, Hannah uh, intricately and expertly introduced us to how Paul writes in this book. It's kind of typical of Paul and um, most of his biblical contributions. He has like this way of weaving his way throughout theology in a somewhat confusing manner. Um, and this morning's passage is no different. We could spend the rest of the year carefully navigating our way through the next eight verses, discussing the weighty Old Testament themes, uh, the stark and deeply significant choices of language that he makes. Um, but I'm not going to concentrate on all of it because it would take far too long. And uh, I think it would be quite boring. Um, if you do want to study it line by line, I respect you. And I can give you some books that I've been reading that do go through it line by line, and you too can get lost in the beautiful and extraordinary but heady, heady, heady intellect of people like N.T. Wright and Scott McKnight. You'd be welcome. I can give them to you. I don't want them anymore. Um, but seriously, if your curiosity is sparked by something uh, that comes up in this passage, and I don't touch on it, the likelihood is that Paul is going to detail it later on in the letter. And so there's a strong chance that we're going to come back to it some point in the next six weeks. So don't fear. Just prior to our passage this morning, Paul has opened the letter to Colossians with words of prayer and with thanksgiving. And during this time of prayer, it appears obvious that Paul has this personal encounter with God, that he has this experience of the Spirit. And many commentators assume a personal encounter with the Spirit because it is these eight striking verses that ensue. This is Colossians 1, 15 to 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all th things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he may have supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. It is agreed 
across the board that this is one of the most seminal passages in the New Testament. And without the um, soft rock set list that we're used to, as we've just experienced, um, it may not sound like it to our ears, um, but this is Paul in uninhibited worship. It's almost like a knee-jerk expression of praise. This is Paul's naked King David moment. He cannot help himself but splurge everything he knows and feels about who Jesus is, what he has done, and the open-armed, open-hearted scandal of the gospel. In these two short paragraphs that we've just read, these paragraphs of poetry, in this spontaneous hymn, he expertly navigates all of the colliding ancient worldviews and belief systems and reminds Colossae that Jesus is Lord. It is all about him, yesterday, today, and forever. So, in the same way that Paul writes to his friend Epaphras and his church plant in Colossae, it's very important for us to hear what Paul has to say to us, Bread Church Plant in Los Angeles. And I want to spend the rest of my time this morning talking about two things in particular. And they are the two groups of people that Paul is talking to during this passionate splurge of worship. Group one, the pagans, the Greeks, and the Romans. And I'm categorizing them as one and the same because Paul basically has in mind anyone who has been brought up to believe in like a pantheon of gods. These people have met Jesus and they find him compelling, they find him interesting, they find him appealing, but he has become just one God amongst many. And group two, the Judaizers, observant Jews who have also met Jesus, they've become Christians, but are peddling the false teaching that all Christians, Gentiles and Jews, even in the light of what Jesus has done, must follow the law. They believe in a double conversion, convert to Jesus, convert to the law. The Judaizers have not fully understood that the law has now been fulfilled in Jesus. And so with their belief of an unfulfilled law, ultimately they still believe that God is far away, far off somewhere. And that the way in which they must um, adhere to meet him, to draw close to God, is to observe the law. And to reiterate something Hannah said um, or touched on last week, Jewish law observance isn't the same as uh, our understanding of Christian legalism. The Judaizers don't believe that they have to earn their salvation through legalism, through behaving well. Because by nature of who they are, by nature of their Jewishness, they have already been chosen. But perfectly observing the law for them helps them mark a clear boundary. Those who are part of Israel, those who aren't part of Israel, those who are chosen and those who are not, those who are clean, those who are dirty. And they're desperately wanting to stay clean. So one, a pluralistic understanding of God, just adding Jesus uh, to your assortment of other gods, the pagan problem. And two, a belief that what Jesus did through his death and resur resurrection did not ultimately fulfill the promise of Israel, and therefore you remain far off from your Father in heaven. God is still distant. You must still observe the law, the Jewish problem. In the ancient world, um, statues of the Greek gods were everywhere. 
in every public space. And each totem uh, was not simply, it didn't simply represent the god, but by some work of mystery, uh, it was believed that they were alive, that each god resided inside their statue. So that's the reason why you wouldn't dare just walk past one. You wouldn't just walk past a statue without recognition. Because Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, was literally present. She was in your midst. Artemis, the goddess of fertility and wealth, was towering above you and as close as you could touch. And these idols constantly reminded you that if you wanted what these gods were offering, if you wanted beauty or fertility or wealth, you must be appeasing them in worship. More than that, if you did not worship, you, all those you love, would be struck down. These gods weren't like they're depicted in Hercules or the Little Mermaid. I'm really sorry to uh, break it to you. These gods held ultimate societal power and you worshipped them in reverence and in fear. And I am completely aware that Greek mythology and idolatry might seem a little primitive to us. You know, people bowing down before something made of stone and offering sacrifices and feeling fear. But as Tim Keller so brilliantly articulates in his book, Counterfeit Gods, can't recommend it enough, Counterfeit Gods. Um, each culture, even now, is dominated by its own idols. Just think about it. After church today, most of us will probably get in a car, classic LA, and we will spend some time driving past the idols of LA, the statues of LA. Office towers, spas, gyms, studios, stadiums, movie lots, and an extraordinary plethora of dogs. <laughs> They're kind of like our canine statues in all shapes and sizes. In some sense, on a wider societal level, we too fear that if we do not appease the pillars of money or of power or of beauty or of the industry, each of us and those we love could experience extreme destruction. Take the economic crash in 2008 as an example, right? It was highly destructive for most of us, for many of us. And perhaps we could now argue that we've learned our lesson that since then we've been trying to worship differently or to stop worshipping at all, and that we have been trying as hard as we can to dislodge those people in power who use their influence for only their own gain. But has it worked? Do you think it's worked? And of course, the reality is idolatry isn't just a societal issue, is it? Idolatry is a personal one. We all have personal statues, and they reside in our hearts and in our minds. If I just maintain a healthy family unit, if my children are happy, if my boyfriend is happy, if I could just achieve uh, becoming partner at work, then I would have financial stability. If um, I manage to show that I'm consistently competent and consistently in control, that maybe my emotions will uh, dissipate somewhat. If I could just work out a little harder and lose a little more weight, if I could just get into the room with the right people, maybe I would get a job. 
if I just have that one thing, then my life will have meaning. In pretty much every one of my educational reports, um, from kindergarten to college, I receive comments like the following. Alice finds it a challenge to respect authority. Alice is disruptive in class, and she likes to lead other children into misbehavior. Or, Alice, provoking thoughts in your essay, a good attempt. Please refrain from speaking throughout my lectures. After college, my first job was in the financial industry in London. And during my first yearly performance review uh, with the head of HR and my manager, I was asked where I saw my career progressing. And I instantaneously answered, I would like to manage both of you. <laughs> because I'd like to be the CEO. So arrogant. And honestly, I think that both of those people would be shook to know that I work for a church and that I love it. But the underlying nature of who I am, to some degree, still rings true. I have never found it easy to respect authority. And I'm sure Ed and Hannah would have some examples <laughs> that could attest to that. Some funny, some slightly more serious. I have never found it found it easy to follow the rules, and I have always been attracted to influence. And of course, to be clear, these things are complex for all of us. I'm driven towards success and to being in charge because they are tangible experiences of control. And as a child, I spent a lot of my time feeling helpless. I couldn't change the situation for my mum. I couldn't protect my family unit. I couldn't reconstruct the relational severs that were at the heart of it. So I was out of control. Just gonna let that pass. Um, so of course, there's credible reasons for my innate attraction to influence. But have I, at times, used my desire for control to manipulate others? Yes. Have I, at times, decided to lie rather than to be honest about my mistakes for my own gain? Yes. Do I, at times, even now, feel a significant sense of anxiety and fear, even panic and point-blank anger if things don't go my way? Yes. And what does Paul say to me here? Alice, you've made your desire for influence and authority an idol. You fear that if you lose power and if you give up your control, that you will also lose your meaning. Can you see the connection? In the same way that the pagans believed that things of meaning could be stripped from them if they did not worship, I too, sometimes more than others, but I too believe that if I do not achieve or experience success or control, I will be stripped of meaning. Verse 16, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. What Paul is saying here is that the human heart can take good things, good, godly things, a desire for success, for love, creativity, relationships, sex, our bodies, nature, creation, even sunsets and moons. We can take anything that in and of itself, they're good. And we can, uh, in this process, deify them as the center of our lives because we think that they can give us security or safety, fulfillment, meaning. But in this process, Jesus becomes just one God amongst many. And so Paul is saying to the pagans in Colossae and to us, hey, do away with your idols. You don't have to fear Jesus is Lord. He's already done it. And just before I move on, I just want to clearly touch on something. For any of us who have been in church for any length of time, it is possible that we have heard some pretty negative and scaremongering teaching around idolatry. Because, guys, you don't want to believe in anything other than Jesus because that's how the demons can get in. That's the kind of things we hear. If you have been told directly or indirectly that your body is evil and it is filled with sexual desire and sin, or if you have been told that drinking alcohol or watching certain movies or listening to certain music or doing yoga is demonic, Paul is saying this, please hear it. Absolutely not. Paul is saying everything, the whole of creation, everything that we see, everything that we experience, everything that we desire, all of it is created by Jesus for Jesus so that we might experience the fullness of life. Verse 16. The problem is not creation, it's not our bodies, and it is not our desires. The problem is that it has gone wrong and it doesn't work in the way that it should. And Paul is imploring us, put Jesus back at the center. Because it's Jesus who reconciles the world, he can reconcile this. Creation, the cosmos, and each of us back to our Father in heaven. Good, glad that's clear. So problem one, the pagan problem, and problem two, the Judaizers. Because we're in the middle of the Alpha course at the moment, I've been spending a little bit more time than usual hearing um, people's stories of growing up in church, their church experience, or their experience of God. And it is striking to me, as someone who didn't really grow up around church, a Christian context at all, um, how often people have felt or have been subjected to unspeakable pain and rejection in the name of God. All have been presented with the absolutely terrifying choice of eternal damnation or Jesus. So you've basically been feared into a relationship with him. And these conversations have caused me to remember again how lucky I am that I walked into a church in London that preached a grace-filled forgiving, barrier-annihilating, intimate and caring Jesus. A church that gave me the space to experience his spirit for myself and allow him to revolutionize my heart. Because for me, I couldn't help but fall in love with him. I wasn't forced. 
It says this in verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul is reminding the Judaizers, Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is God, the fullness of God. It says in verse 19 that God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus. And it says in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So to see Jesus is to see God. And what more, what has Jesus done? He's brought peace. He's brought reconciliation. And he opens his hands on the cross and welcomes us in by his blood. Paul is saying, guys, the law's been fulfilled. Come on, come and experience the scandalous love of your father because he has done everything necessary to draw close to you. You don't need the law. It's been fulfilled. You don't need it. Just come to him. Many of us have not been shown this Jesus, the real Jesus. And in some sense, we might feel desperate to meet him, but we just don't really know how. And because of all of our legitimate church baggage, we respond kind of like the Judaizers do. We're fearful. Because deep down, we still think that God is far off, and we live with this sense that he's displeased with us. And ultimately, scarily, that we might burn. Wouldn't it be amazing if we, as a church, actually believed the gospel? If we could actually get our heads around and we could take grasp of the reality that you and I and anyone else who walks through these doors, they are actually wanted. They are actually welcomed. If you don't believe me, here are a few quick examples of people in the gospel coming face to face with Jesus. Number one, morally bankrupt and divisive, Zacchaeus is a man who finds comfort in the number of dollars in his bank account. But worse, Zacchaeus is a man willing to stand on anyone and willing to steal from the vulnerable to expand his grimy empire. But this manipulative, socially dirty and friendless man sprints through a jam-packed marketplace, edges his way through crowds of people and climbs a tree just in case he can catch a glimpse of him. And when he comes face to face with the Messiah, he declares in front of the very people who despise him, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of ever anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Wouldn't it be extraordinary if the morally bankrupt in our society did that? Just a thought. And Jesus responds to, to Zacchaeus, today, salvation has come to your house. Here's another one. A man of status and of power 
a man with 100 Roman soldiers under his command. This was a man who would have been immediately recognizable as you walk through the streets. The centurion was a man of political prowess, entrenched in the fabric of the Roman Empire. He was a dignitary, a man of authority. And in the ancient world, if someone like you or I, just like a regular person, came into contact with the centurion, our bodies would fill with adrenaline because he's one of those people. He was to be revered. And you were expected to treat him as such. But this centurion, a man of the highest social, political, and military esteem, bows before Jesus and says, Lord, I don't deserve for you to come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus declares, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith, let it be done as, the, as you believe that it would. And his servant is immediately healed. And finally, unlike Zacchaeus, who was a social outcast through every fault of his own, the woman with the issue of bleeding was a social outcast for no fault of her own. But her illness made her a disgrace. She was considered ritually unclean and she was untouchable. 12 years in isolation, 12 years of constant bleeding, 12 years of suffering. But she too was enthralled by Jesus. She knows that if she can just get close to him, he'll heal her. She doesn't care what anybody else thinks. She reaches through the public uh, shame, the potential of public stoning, because remember, she couldn't touch anyone. She wasn't allowed. She reaches out and she touches the corner of Jesus's cloak as he walks by. And he immediately turns around and looks her in the face and says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from suffering. He heals her, yeah. But what else is clear in this interaction? He knows her. He's her father. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In each of these encounters, two key things happen. One, they all know who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. Zacchaeus gives away all of the money that is not rightfully his. The centurion recognizes that his power is, and his authority is restricted and that it is only God's power and only God's authority that can heal his servant. And the bleeding woman knows that Jesus can restore her. So they know that Jesus is Lord. They recognize his lordship. And second, they personally respond to him. After the interaction that we heard, Zacchaeus um, accepts a meal with Jesus, which is an ancient, an ancient symbol of friendship. It's like a, a family tie has begun. The centurion humbles himself and asks for Jesus to help. He admits that he needs help. Radical for a man of his stature. And the woman reaches out and touches him. 
They are all moved to respond. They cannot help but want to be close to him. If you take one thing away from this morning, let it be this. If the picture of Jesus that you have been sold in church is judgmental and angry, if he seems to administer spiritual whiplash, I love you, but also you're going to burn in hell. If he seems distant or foreboding, if he seems to be uninterested, if he seems too busy to intervene with your suffering, can I join forces with the underlying message that Paul is trying to articulate to the Colossians? Come and meet the real thing. The forgiving, powerful, loving, scandalous, grace-filled, freedom-bringing Jesus. Every division and wall put up. Jesus reaches through social barriers, gender barriers, ethnic, moral, and religious barriers. He breaks through trauma and fear, all of your guilt and shame. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God made known. And he knows you.